It's good to be again, uh, be back with you guys again. If you're new or first time in a long time, we've been a uh, uh, long time in this series called The Big Story. We started back in the fall where we're going through the big story of Scripture. Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one story of Scripture all together. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And if you're sitting there going, I have no idea where in the world Ezra is. It's a little bit to the left of Psalms. Psalms is the very middle of your Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, and it keeps going from there. Um, We are rounding out the end of the Old Testament. I had every intention of kind of going to Malachi this week and kind of rounding out and just ending the Old Testament. And uh, I had this heavy conviction that we needed to bring Israel home out of exile uh, before we moved into the New Testament. I thought that might be pretty good. We've been spending a lot of time about how Israel is away in exile, and they actually do come home. There are all these new beginnings that take place, and I thought that was kind of important to uh, come back to this part and, and, and to talk about their homecoming and, and return to Israel. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, homecomings are a little bit different, aren't they? And I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not talking about your homecomings over here where you got the mums and the garters and all the dances and the, the football games and like those are not what we're talking about here. But like, I'm talking about like, have any of you been here where you've, you've gone home for the first time and it's been a really, really long time? And anybody done that recently and you're kind of like, you're going home, you're like, okay, there's a lot of new around here and there's a lot of things that are very, very different. Like, I, 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 do, I feel like every time I go back to my hometown in spring, which is right next to the woodlands, kind of a suburb of Houston. I feel like every time I go back there, everything is different from how I remembered it. I grew up in spring, and I had no idea how small of a town it actually kind of was. It's kind of a, uh, it was an undeveloped suburbish area outside of Houston, and I wouldn't call it country or anything like that, but um, it was a place growing up where it took about 15 to 20 minutes really to drive anywhere of note, to go to a grocery store, to go to our church, or anything like that. And now we have this massive uh, Highway 99. It's a big, giant loop. It's kind of like 635, and it goes to the front of our neighborhood now, and I can be anywhere in Houston in like 10 minutes, and it's incredible. You go back, and like literally everything back there is fully developed, and it's just completely different from how I remembered it. Like the, the, there's a major forest that was right next to our neighborhood we would grow up in, and it was just uh, that was the place that we played as a kid. And so my brother and I, like, we would all go back in the forest, and we'd go play in the woods, and we'd get into all kinds of trouble, uh, you know, bottle rocket wars, BB gun wars. I still have two scars in the back of my head from that, which is... Uh, a lot of fun and, and, and uh, yeah, a terrible thing to get a part of. Like, now you go back and the whole thing is developed. I mean, beautiful neighborhoods and homes and, and just nothing is as I remember it. And even back then, like, back in the day, there was about, there's probably one main restaurant in town that everybody went to that was kind of at the front of our neighborhood. And that was our option. If we wanted to go out, if we wanted to go out to eat, then we would go to Neil's Restaurant. It was a hamburger joint and, like, that was the place to go. And we would go chow at, at Neil's Restaurant. Fun story, uh, my brother actually owns, and I don't know if he still does or not, but he owns the, the eating record at, at Neil's Restaurant. Uh, he's actually here this morning. And um, uh, he's a little bit bigger version of me. So, like, Micah got all the size in our family, and I got all the, um, still trying to figure that one out. But, like, he got, like, all the size in the family and everything. And so, like, he has this eating record. And at Neil's Restaurant, little plaque up there, largest burger ever eaten there, two one-pound patties each, two of them, okay, two one-pound patties, a whole pound of cheese, um, and an entire pound of bacon on top, uh, not to mention lettuce, tomatoes, and everything else, but like that was the place that you ate, right, you, there's this, that was Spring, Texas, you go back there, you got one major restaurant, it explains a lot of things right now, um, and so, 
Uh, but like that was the place that you go. And like you go back now, and everything's different. I mean, we've got so many restaurants all around. We've got the major ones. We've got Chick-fil-A. Praise God Almighty. He's shown his light upon Spring, Texas. We've got Buffalo Wild Wings. It's just kind of like right there for me. And, uh, and like everything's different. And so whenever I go back to Spring, Texas, like, there's a lot of joy. You come back, and there's mystery. Everything's different. And there's some excitement about all the different new things that are there, but there's also a sense of loss and a little bit of confusion, because you're kind of going back and you're going, it doesn't really feel like home anymore. Like, like everything that I remember from home, like everything that I was comfortable with and everything that, that I knew and everything that was right there, like it's not feeling like the exact same thing. Like we're, it's kind of confusing. I don't know exactly where to go and how do I get here now because all these roads are different and, and, and everything's different about this whole thing and there's a sense of confusion and loss. The question I want to ask this morning is, is, spiritually speaking, like where do you and I even begin when we're returning from exile? Are you with me there? Like, like where do you and I begin when you've ruined everything that's good in your life and you've been given a second chance to start all over again and you're coming home and you're kind of going, okay, how do we, how do we put these pieces back together again? Where do we even begin in that road. Where in the world do you and I begin when you've been running from God for so many years in your life and you're finally sitting there going, I want to heed the call to come home, O Lord. I want to return home and I want to begin again in this relationship with you, but God, I have no idea where to even begin. I think that's the question that, that, that Israel is going to begin to show us here in Ezra chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, Ezra chapter 3, again, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc., etc., etc. I want to catch us up to where we are in this timeline. We are talking about this in terms of the big story. And again, I know it may be repetitive for some of you who have been here for a little while, but um, it's good to get a sense of exactly where everything is fitting into place. What we're seeing in the Old Testament, even as things are wrapping up in the Old Testament, is that this is a message largely about God's redemptive purposes coming to the ends of the earth through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. That's what's going on. He is rescuing, he is redeeming the ends of the earth through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. Two major covenants that are guiding the entire thing. The first one is the Abrahamic that's going to be taking place about 2081 B.C. Uh, God's unconditional unilateral covenant agreement promise that he makes with Abraham that I'm going to give you land, people, and blessing, which is the nation of Israel, which is going to come about a little bit later on. That's what's taking place there. A little, little bit after that, he makes another covenant with Moses in 1446. And this is largely a conditional covenant that is going to mediate the relationship between Israel and God. This is going to be how they are to relate to one another in the context of this covenant relationship. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 19. Here's what he says. Again, I want to keep us reminding us of this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, God says... Then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that is God's design and his ideal there with the nation of Israel, that they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Priests are mediators between God and man. That's what they do. Uh, they're not, they are not representatives of God. They're mediators of, uh, they're mediators between God and man, bringing them together in the context of relationship. And that is his design for Israel. As I bless you, as we work together in relationship, as you know me, through you, I'm going to be working to bring my blessing, to bring knowledge of my goodness to the ends of the earth. And of course, we know throughout the Old Testament, it doesn't really work out very well. Uh, There's all kinds of sin. There's all kinds of falling into temptation. There's all kinds of idolatry. They're wandering far from God. They, They refuse the blessings of God. 
and it kind of results in all kinds of destruction and discipline, ultimately leading to two different captivities. Uh, we know that when Solomon dies in about 931, the kingdom of Israel, uh, 12 different tribes, they're divided in half, top and bottom, north and south. Two major captivities take place, 722 BC, the Assyrians are in world powers, or the world power at the time, they're going to take over the north. About 100 years later, the Babylonians are going to come along, and they're going to defeat the south, uh, of the southern part of Israel called Judah. Uh, they're going to take them into captivity. Major, major mo- movements taking place here in the Old Testament. 539 B.C., this is when the Medes and the Persians are going to be the new world powers, the third one taking over at this time. They're going to come in, and they're going to take over for the Babylonians. They're going to inherit all of the captives that are there. Uh, keep in mind, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago in, uh, Dan- in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. That's the same time, okay? The Babylonians were in power. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the Medes and the Persians, they come and take over. And now you've got Darius, you've got King Cyrus taking place here. The reason I'm saying that is because Ezra's story is going to pick up here in 537 B.C., uh, where when King Cyrus, who's the king of Persia at the time, he's going to make a proclamation which is allowing the Jews to finally return home. They've been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years at this time, and now this proclamation is going to be taking place, and they're finally going to be able to return home. Here's how it reads in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. We're going to come back to that. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So two really, really cool things about this proclamation that's taking place here that I really want to point out kind of before we get to the big picture here. But, like, number one, God is in complete control of the Persian king Cyrus. Are you guys seeing this? This is a fascinating, fascinating thing taking place in history, that God is in complete control of this Persian king Cyrus. About 150 years before Cyrus ever comes on the scene, um, God is giving detailed um, prophetic description of exactly what's going to be taking place through the prophet Isaiah. And so I want you to see this. I want you to see how detailed this prophecy is. 150 years before Cyrus ever comes on the scene, here's what God is saying to the people of Israel through his prophet Isaiah. Here it is, Isaiah 45, 1 and verse 4. The whole chapter is, is filled with this stuff, but here's what he says. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you don't even acknowledge me. In other words, Cyrus is not a believer who fears God. However, God is still going to use Cyrus in order to accomplish his purposes in all of his different ways. Here's the most specific one. I love this in chapter 45, verse 13. Check this out. Again, the specificity 150 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all of his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. For not, but not for a price or a reward, says the Lord God Almighty. 150 years before Cyrus is on the scene, God is letting his people know that he is in complete control. He's saying, I'm preparing you for exile. Yes, you're going under discipline here. There's a point to this entire exile. My hope is that you're going to come back and return to me, that there's going to be no more idolatry and wandering. Uh, 70 years in captivity. God, I'm going to use a man named Cyrus to set you free, and then things will be 
going about as planned. In other words, I'm in complete control of everything that's taking place. We even see that in verse 1. It says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Right? This is not accidental. This is not superfluous language here. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah 25, 11, again, long before they are ever taken away into exile, here's what he says. God is saying that they are going to become a desolate wasteland, speaking of Judah, and these nations would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. He's giving the timeline. He's giving the specifics of what they should expect when they're away in exile, which we also see in Daniel chapter 9. Remember this a few weeks back, we talked about Daniel's prayer. Daniel is fervent in his prayer, and he is praying in expectation of their release because he's familiar with the prophecies of Jeremiah. He knows that the 70 years is coming up, and so he's preparing everybody for this whole thing, and he's preparing himself. God, would you be faithful to your word? Would you come and deliver your people? Like, that's why he's praying right there. Um, anyway, I thought that was fascinating. It's not my main point except to say that, that, that God is all over this return home from exile. And I'm wondering if, I wonder if the exact same thing is true for some of us this morning, that God is all over your return from spiritual exile, whatever that may look like for you. I want to jump into it this morning in chapter 3. Here's how the entire thing plays out. And I just want to draw out a couple priorities that they kind of go after as soon as they get home. Here's what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, And his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them. I love this part. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they continued to serve the Lord. What you're going to see in uh, Nehemiah is going to be writing somewhere around this, a little bit after this, but around this same time. Um, And what we're also going to see is they're going to come back to Jerusalem, which is not going to be the main point of what we're doing this morning. But they're going to come back to Jerusalem, and they're going to be rebuilding the city walls, which were destroyed um, in 586 B.C. When the Babylonians come in, they wipe out the entire city. They're going to come and rebuild these walls. They're going to be rebuilding the temple again, and they're going to be coming home to enemy territory, essentially. When the bad guys come in and they destroy your city, they come and take over your city. Uh, the, the, the Israelites were taken away into captivity. So when they're coming home, it's not an empty city. It's not that there's nobody there. Uh, the Babylonians are still there, and they're coming home and watching the Israelites return home, and they're not exactly happy about them rebuilding their traditions, rebuilding their religion, and reestablishing their city. There's all kinds of opposition, and it's saying right here that despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation, and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and the evening sacrifices. Right there in just the first four verses of this chapter, I just want to draw out two priorities that we're beginning to see in the people of God as they're beginning to rebuild their life. Uh, the first priority that we're going to see is the priority of a unified gathering. Okay, We're going to see the priority of a unified gathering, and I'm going to talk about it in terms of what we even do here in the church a little bit later on. But that's what we're seeing. It's the priority of a unified gathering, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, after they've gotten home and they, they, they found their homes again, the first thing that they do is they've assembled together as one in Jerusalem. So right off the bat, it's the first thing that they're doing. They're getting into town and they're saying, okay, we're coming together as one people here in Jerusalem. And before we look past this too quickly, I just want to make a point here that unity is not exactly Israel's strength, right? Like we get this throughout their history, like unity is not something that they did very well. 
I mean, you remember back to Joshua and Judges and the big story of what we've been talking about. Like, division was the norm in Israel's past. I mean, the 12 tribes of Israel, they never got along. And that's a, probably because they, it started as 12 different brothers, right? Like, brothers don't like, like they fight. They, they have a way of dividing, except for you and me, Micah. We were right there. But, like, most brothers, like, like, there's division, there's fighting and things like that. It kind of carries through in Israel's history, which is partly what makes... King David's rule in, in Israel is so spectacular. Like God's favor comes upon King David, and for the first time ever, God is able to unite all the different tribes of Israel together under King David's leadership. And of course, that, that lasts for about 20 good years, and then comes Bathsheba, and then comes all these distractions, and then comes all this dysfunction, and then comes King Solomon after him, and Solomon gets wary. He marries hundreds of different wives, and he has hundreds of different concubines, and his heart goes astray. And at the end of his time, like, literally, the kingdom splits in two once again. Like, there is no, there's no unity in the kingdom, even to the point where here, um, the north and the south, they are being forcibly uh, reunited in captivity. So take, just keep this in mind. Like, when the, when the Assyrians take the northern kingdom of Israel... Um, some of them, many of them actually remain there in, in Israel. Many of them are taken away into captivity. When the Babylonians take over for the Assyrians, the Babylonians are taking their captives, the northerners in Israel. And they are also taking the southerners, and they are bringing them with them into Babylon. So now you've got mixed people here. You've got northerners, you've got southerners, you've got everybody in between. This is where the Samaritans are going to come a little bit later on in history and stuff. But this is what's taking place here. And so you've got northerners and you've got southerners. And now in, as they are returning home, that's who's returning home to Jerusalem. So all of my point here is that division was normative in that time. Unity was not something that they did very, very well. However, they are back here in Jerusalem, and they're trying to rebuild everything that was holy and sacred. And it seems like they are remembering, oh, yeah, that there's something holy and sacred about the unity of our gathering. That there's something, that's, there's something holy about the purposes that God has called our covenant community to. And so they're gathered together, and they're assembling together as one right there in Jerusalem. It's not an easy thing for us to remember, is it? I was thinking about this a lot this past week. It's like we, we get into this cultural habit of Christianity here when we get into these rhythms of every single week we'll come into the church and we'll do our thing. And we have our relationships and we have our rhythms and we have our routines. And you do that year after year after year. And it's easy for us to forget why in the world we're doing the things that we're called to do. Um, I was reading a V. Ma no, I wasn't reading this. I saw this on the line. I don't read V Magazine. Anyway, a few years back, V Magazine did this did this uh, article with Justin Bieber. Okay, I'm reading about Justin Bieber. Yes, I'm googling him. Um, they did this article with Justin Bieber, and they're interviewing him about his faith. I mean, if you know anything about him, he's he professes faith, and he's he's got some sort of roots there, and and uh, and so they're talking to him about his faith, and uh, and being a part of a local church. And here's what the Biebs had to say. He said, a lot of people who are religious, I think they get lost. They go to church just to go to church. I'm not trying to disrespect them, but for me, I focus more on praying and talking to them. I don't have to go to church. And I don't want to disrespect the beeps because I love the beeps, right? Like there's some real stuff that's probably happening and taking place there. And he's partially right about this, right? Like many of us go to church just to go to church. Many of us go to church for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus, Right? And he's partially right about this. You don't have to go to church in order to be saved, right? 
But I'm wondering, like, how many of us have adopted some sort of this philosophy where we're thinking, like, where we have a way of thinking about church like it's some sort of an elective that you may or may not choose to actively engage in. Like it's some sort of an option that you may want to add to your life or may not want to add to your life. Like Barna researchers, they're saying that this is actually a, a huge, huge problem today. Here's what they had to say most recently. Gone are the days where committed church members attend 48 or 52 weeks out of the year. Today you can count on a committed church member showing up somewhere between one to three times a month or 12 to 36 times a year. Major, major shift going on, right? And of course, there's all kinds of reasons for it, right? We know this. There's a million different reasons. There's all kinds of individualistic values that are rising to the surface today. It's a major part of it. Um, everything, some of the greatest sermons in the world that, you'll ever get to, that you're ever going to hear uh, are online. I mean, you guys can go home and you can rock out to Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans and Priscilla Shire and Matt Chandler and some of these greatest preachers in the entire world. And you can go home and listen to their podcasts and have the greatest biblical teaching in the world, like right there at your fingertips. You can go home and you can listen to Hillsong and, and rock out to worship or you, the Gaithers, if that's your cup of tea or whatever it may be. Or like you can go back and you can do those things, like everything that you possibly could want in a lot of different ways. It's right there and it's available to you online. On top of that, there's just a million different options that are going on in our world today, right? Like on Sunday mornings, now you've got baseball practice and band practice, and you've got basketball, you've got all kinds of sports. We're working now on Sunday mornings. Like these weren't really options a whole lot very long ago. These things did not take place. So there are a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of different things that we can point to, but our problem is the exact same problem that Israel had. We've forgotten the purpose of our gathering. Church, like, like this was never intended to be an elective. This is never intended to be this option that you may or may not just want to choose to go into. It's like like a lot of people talk about the church like it's a cruise ship for us to come and to be able to feast on the blessings of God or something like that. Like that is never the intent of the church. Like the church was never intended to be a cruise ship where we gather together when we get fat on the blessings of God. That's just not what we were designed to be. It was never intended to be a battleship where like all of the battles and all of the wars were waged right here within these walls. If anything, the church was intended and designed by God in order to be an aircraft carrier where people are coming and going for a short amount of time. They're being repaired, they're being restored and refueled and then sent back out into the world in order to engage the mission that he's called you to engage. Church, that is the purpose of our gathering. I want you to see how Jesus talks about the church here in Matthew chapter 16. It's actually the very first time that Jesus talks about the church um, in the New Testament. Here's how it unfolds. It's this popular passage. Jesus is going about his ministry, doing a lot of different miracles and a lot of different teachings. And people are kind of beginning to wonder, who is this Jesus really? And so Jesus pulls his disciples aside one night, takes them into Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them this question. He says, who do people say that I am? You remember how it goes down? And they're kind of going, well, a lot of people think that you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to them and he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he says this. He says, well, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says this in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, meaning this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, it's a play on words because Peter's name literally means rock. But he's saying on this rock, meaning on this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. The ecclesia is the original word. It is a Greek word which literally means a gathering or an assembling together of people. 
That's all that it is. It's exactly what we're seeing here in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. They're gathering together as one assembly of people, of God's covenant community of people. That's what this is. It's got nothing to do with a building. It's got nothing to do with political structures. However, as important as those may be to help facilitate the gathering of people and stuff, but primarily the church is a gathering of people who have gathered around the exact same conviction as Peter, who are sitting there confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. He's not John the Baptist. He's not just a good teacher, and he's not one of millions of different ways to get to the exact same God. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living uh, uh, He is the Son of the living God. And what he's saying next is going to say is when people gather around that one common conviction, the next thing he says is the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. And that is the testimony of history. I mean, in Acts chapter 7, when the church is exploding on the scene and the Romans try to kill the church by martyring Stephen and putting the fear of God in the church body, like what takes place? The church just continues to explode. I mean, it says that the Lord keeps adding to their number daily those who are being saved, and the Romans are trying to kill the church, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like in 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian, uh, he tries to stamp out the church again by burning, uh, not all the Bibles, they didn't have like compiled Bibles and stuff, but the sacred literature, trying to burn all those different things, and by threatening to, to, to feed Christian families to lions. Like he's trying to kill and crush the church, and what does God do? Like within a century, he raises up Constantine. Constantine becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire. And uh, all of a sudden, Christianity is the established religion of the entire Roman Empire. And the gospel keeps exploding. The 18th century, the French atheist Voltaire famously says, Within 100 years of my death, uh, people aren't even going to remember the Bible. You know what's in his home today? A Bible printing press. I'm not even making that up. Don't ever say things like that. Like God will make it come back and it'll be very ironic and hilarious for the rest of us and stuff. But like that's what's taking place. Like in the 20th century, the communists tried to kill off the church. This is Stalin and Marx and Mao Zedong and stuff. Like today, communism is fading and the church is exploding in China and in Cuba and in formerly communist-occupied territories all around the world. That's what he means when he says the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. Church gates are not an offensive weapon. They are a defensive measure that are designed to keep insiders in and outsiders out, which is exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to keep people inside the gates of hell, lost and dead in their sins, never to be found. That's what he wants. He wants people, he wants you and I and people everywhere to be living in exile far from the things of God. He wants to make sure that no one ever gets to go home, which is the purpose of the church. Like the purpose, there's nothing arbitrary about what we do. We are a gathering of worshipers who are constantly being encouraged and equipped so that we can go back out into the world in order to storm the gates of hell. That is the purpose of the church. Like there's nothing arbitrary about what we do here week in and week out. You may be a greeter at our doors and there's nothing arbitrary about what you're doing. It's not superfluous. It's not meaningless or anything. You are, you are storming the gates of hell by helping us create a welcoming environment where every man, woman, and child can walk into this place and recognize that there is grace and there's hope and there's freedom and salvation to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing superfluous about what we're doing. Like when you're volunteering back there in the kids' ministry, it's not just babysitting. Like when, you're, like when you're rocking babies, you're playing games, like you're not, just, you're not just passing time with them. You're storming the gates of hell by investing in the next generation of, of, of leaders. 
Like when you're serving in the student ministry, you're doing the exact same thing. When you're going over to an adult Bible fellowship or the men's ministry or the women's ministry, something like like you're not just sitting in these just and these just these these kind of cold and static learning environments. Like it's not just about learning new cool things. It's about engaging with the Word of God in such a way that He can build maturity inside of your life, so that you can go outside of these walls and storm the gates of hell and never live in exile again. Like that's what we're doing. Small groups. It's not just friendships. It's not just a dinner group or something like that. Like, yes, it is that. It's at least that. But hopefully it is an intentional community of believers that are gathering together under the common confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they're intentionally loving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another, serving one another, that they can be built up into maturity so that you can storm the gates of hell and never live in exile. Again, church, everything that we are doing is towards that end. When we are giving, uh, whether it's hospitality or mercy or evangelism or leadership or prayer, like it's all going to that end. It's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says that we are the body of Christ. And each of us essentially members of it. It's each of us essential members of that one particular body. In other words, you and I were made to be a part of a body, and we were made to contribute to the building of that one particular body. Church, we have all got a role to play here. Like we've all got a role to play, and we get this imagery that if a body is ever to be healthy, then that means that each individual member of that body has to not only know their purpose, they've got to be willing to contribute according to that purpose. We get this, that we can't just be consumers, that we've got to be contributors to what God is doing in the kingdom of God. And it seems like for years, like Israel's forgotten that purpose. They've done their own thing. They've been fine to divide. They've been fine to to go off and to kind of go through the habits and getting fat and healthy on the blessings of God. And they've forgotten. And they're coming home, back to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they're remembering, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's something holy about the unity of our gathering. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's something holy about the purposes that God has called our covenant community of believers to. Like, it's not just about us. It's something about bigger that's going on. The second thing that they prioritize here is really a subset of what we're seeing right there. The second thing that they're prioritizing here is right worship. Okay, and you're going to see this throughout this entire chapter here, but they're going after this big time. Uh, chapter t- verse 2, here's what it says. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his pre- fellow priests um, and his associates, they began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on, on it in accordance with what's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear, they built the altar on its foundation they sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord both in the morning and the evening. Verse 4, then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, the feast of booths. Verse 5, after that, it was the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord as well as those who brought uh, free will offerings also to the Lord. In other words, what we're going to be seeing through the whole rest of the chapter is this establishment of right worship unto God once again. Why? Because if worship is not at the core of what we do, we are no different than a club. Like if worship is not at the core of what we're doing in our gathering, then we are no different than a country club. Like, and Jesus is going to talk about this. Matthew chapter 6, verse, verse 33, Jesus is going to say, Seek first the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's the entire realm of God's rule and reign. Seek first the kingdom of God, everything about him, everything that he is ruling and reigning, and his righteousness, meaning the righteousness which has been gifted to you in Jesus Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. What's he talking about with all these things? He's talking about everything that you and I could possibly worry about tomorrow. 
He's talking about like money, health, relationships, three steps to a better you, your best life now, how to win friends and influence people. And what he's saying here is like that stuff is fantastic, but, but worship comes first. Like seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will then be added unto you. He's talking about the priority of worship. Church, like we've got to understand that when we gather together every single week uh, and we talk about this thing called worship, it is about so much more than just a couple songs here and there. Like it's about so much more than just singing a sweet little tune. Like we see a beautiful picture of this, Matthew chapter 28, verse 8. This is just after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, kind of a big moment in our history here. Uh, the two Marys, they go to see Jesus uh, after the resurrection, and here's what it says. It says, they left the tomb quickly with fear and the great joy, and they re- re- ran to report it to his disciples that he was alive. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped, proskuneoed him. Right? Can we just picture that scene for a second? Like it says that they took hold of his feet. They're seeing Jesus, and they're grabbing hold of his feet, and it says that they worshipped. Why in the world would they do that? Like, why? That seems weird. Why are they tackling his ankles? In the middle of that moment, they are beholding who he is. They are realizing the truth about who Jesus is. They are realizing that everything that they thought was going to be true, everything that they hoped was going to be true, was actually true in Jesus. He really did conquer sin and death. He really does have the power to forgive us of sins. In the middle of that moment, they are recognizing that he really is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it compels them to get down on the ground and to grab his feet and to worship, proskuneo him. That is what worship is. It is this word, proskuneo, which literally means to lower yourself and to kiss to or toward someone else in a token of reverence for who they are. It's this picture of, this is, is the same word that was often used of, of lay people when a king would come into town and a king would come down their street and the lay people would come out of their places and they would bow down on the street as the king is passing by and they would blow kisses up to this king as a token of reverence, recognizing who he is and who they are in light of him. That is what worship it is, is. It is the totality, the total response of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength to who God is and everything that he has done for us. It's what we read about in Psalm 27, 4, when the psalmist says, One thing that I have asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be able to meditate in his temple and just to be able to behold his beauty. Like that's, that's, that's his cry of his heart, just to be able to behold his beauty. There's one thing that I ask is that I can just sit there and that I'll be able to see him in all of his glory and just to be able to behold it in order to, to absorb it and to bring it into my life. Church, you've got to understand, like, like, I, I could care less about to-do lists and I could care less about giving you every little principle in order to make you have a better life. Like my hope and my prayer is that we would be able to behold the beauty of God in such a way that it leads us to worship, in such a way that he takes hold of our life, transforms us from the inside, that we would go outside of these walls, and that the gates of hell would not prevail. Like you've got to understand, like I'm, I'm praying and hoping for the revelation scene taking place here at Dallas Bible Church. It's this scene in Revelation where John gets his glimpse of the heavens, and it's all the elders and the saints and the angels and all these, the, the, the creatures and stuff. They're, they're seeing the throne room of God. They're singing God in all of his glory. And the only thing that makes sense for them to do is to bow down and to cry out in a bold expression saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Church, how in the world do we behold the beauty of God? How do we behold the glory of God and not let it impact everything else about our lives? Like, how, how, how are we able to see him and not have it completely transform us from the inside out? 
Like, it makes no sense. The psalmist is going to say, sing the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Church, like, how in the world do we even think about our salvation, everything that he has accomplished for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and not have a song to sing? Like, how do we, be, how do we think about what he's done for us in the past, and in the present, and in the future? In the past, it's like everything that he has saved us from, and not have a song to sing. How do we struggle to worship and to bow to him in all things when we were sitting here and beholding, here's what he's done for me so long ago. When I first came to him, here's everything that he is freeing me from in the present tense. This this present tense salvation which is being played out today. And everything that he's going to save me from in the future still when he comes to return and make all things new. Like when we behold his beauty, when we think about his salvation, how is worship such a struggle for us? It's a priority of worship. Tozer talks about it like this. This is one of my, my favorite quotes of his. I've shared it with you a couple times. Here's what he says. I think it would be a wonderful thing if every preacher in America would begin to preach about God and nothing else for an entire year. Just one solid year to preach about God, who he is, his attributes, his perfections, his being, the kind of God that he is, why we dare to trust him, why we can trust him, why we should trust him, why we can love him, why we should love him, why we dare not fall short and keep on preaching on God, the triune God, and keep on until God fills the whole horizon and the whole world. Faith would spring up like grass by the watercourses. Then let a man get up and preach a promise, and the whole congregation would say, I can trust that promise because I can see the one who made it. That is the priority of worship. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you, that I'll be able to behold your beauty, that I'll be able to see who you actually are, God, that it would come and it would take root inside of my life, and it would produce a fruit that's constantly overflowing. And what he's saying here is that when we see him, when we behold him, all these other things, all the different practical implications will be taken care of. And then when we become a gathering of worshipers, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against us. When we're gathered together under that common conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to start to wrap this up. A little while ago, I was at the barber shop, and we're talking with my barber. and They're asking the typical questions. What do you do? Why do you do it? That kind of thing. And I tell them I'm a pastor. And I've told you this before. It's always weird when you tell someone you're a pastor. You're like, okay, I don't know if we get to keep talking or if that's the end of the conversation, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just one of those weird things. And so I'm like, actually, I'm a, the pastor at Dallas Bible Church right around the corner. I start telling them about it. And she's like, really? Why are you a pastor? Like, why, why would you go into the ministry? She was so confused by it. And I thought about it for a second. The only thing I could say is because I believe that the entire thing is true. Why would you get in the ministry? Because I really believe this whole thing is true. I started thinking about this a long time ago. I'm remembering back to the early days when, when God gave me this original conviction. Became a believer at a young age as a young child and got into the middle school years and got into the sophomore year of high school. And it was there that the end of my sophomore year in high school that God really gave me a, a vision for who he was. And I was there at a retreat. We're out at Enchanted Rock with our youth group and stuff. And I remember sitting out there listening to the speaker. And it's just one of these moments where I became just aware of how big he was how glorious he really was. The amount of grace that he's given to me in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, church. And I'm just telling you, it's just one of these moments where you go from I'm saved to I'm actually getting and beholding the beauty and the holiness of God in a moment. Changed everything. I remember coming back from that retreat, and that was the first time I can just say I feel like I was actually engaging in worship 
for the first time, not just coming and singing a few songs and not just putting a few bucks in a plate and not just attending a church or tucking in my shirt or whatever it may be. Like, like I felt like for the very first time I'm beholding the beauty and the glory of God and actually being able to engage and worship in recognition of who he actually is changed my life. That in addition with um, recognizing that beyond that, it's not just about feasting on the goodness of God. It was Ephesians chapter 2. It was 1 Corinthians 12. It was understanding that we alone are the body of Christ and seeing his purposes come out in the rest of the world and how we're a part of that whole thing. It was Ephesians chapter 2. This verse I share with you guys all the time. We are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which he's already prepared in advance for us to do. Change my life. Wait, God, you've got a purpose for my life? You created me with intentionality. Like there's more than just living my time here on earth and living it up as much as I can. Like there's, there's intention. There's thoughtfulness behind my creation. Like you're doing something with the church. It's not just attendance and it's not just, it's not just someone keeping a job over here. And it's not just uh, moral, morality control or, or some other kind of crazy thing like that. Like you're doing something with this gathering. Like I love this word, but um, the word workmanship in that verse, it's, it's translated in the Greek as poema. That's what the word is, poema. You know what word that is in English? It's a poem, right? It's what he's saying right here. He's saying that, that you are his poem. We are Christ's poem. We are Christ's workmanship. We are Christ's work of art. I don't know a whole lot about poetry. I'm just not that great at that. Um, dabbled a little bit here and there. There's a couple things I know about poetry. Uh, number one, like poetry is never just thrown together. Like it's never just completely random and it's never thoughtless and it's never never anything like that number two it always comes from someone's heart like poetry is an expression of what's true and what's going on inside of our core i wanted to check this out in psalm 139 here's what it says for you created my inmost being this is a psalmist crying out to god for you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb i praise you because i am fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful and i know them very very well and what he's saying is that we are his work of art. We are his poem. We are his poetry. He did not just throw you together. You're not just an afterthought. We are his poetry. We are his thoughtful creation. And he created us for the purpose of good works in order to build up his church and all for the glory of his name. Church, he is building something here. There's nothing random about what we do. And it's not just here in Dallas, but it's all around the city of Dallas and it's all around this country and it's all around the world. It's not just a Bible church, and it's not just a Baptist, and it's not just a Presbyterian. It's a, it's a lot of different uh, expressions, and it's a lot of different personalities, and it's a lot of different preferences. But it's the people of God gathered under this one conviction that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And what he's saying here is that when we gather together under that one common conviction in unity, then the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Not long ago, I got um, reconnected with my old youth pastor back in those days, Todd, and uh, had a fun time kind of reminiscing and thinking back as I was thinking about homecomings and coming back to spring, Texas, and all these different things. And we did this kind of a memorial. It was uh, his 50th birthday, and everybody's sending in all these testimonies of how God used that ministry in order to change their lives and started reminiscing, just thinking about all the different pieces that came into place in order to um, help me become uh, a growing disciple of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about a number of different people. I was thinking about Mike Zaro, this crazy, this crazy college student who started volunteering in the, in the youth ministry. And he just started influencing and he started like taking a group of people and just discipling us and teaching us the word of God. And 
I started just thinking about the weird things we started doing with him. I'm thinking about Diane Severance, who was my first grade teacher, who was a history teacher in the junior high over there. And this was a very, it was a kind of a boring Sunday school class, but every single week she would come and she would teach us God's word and, and she would come and she would talk with us and she genuinely cared about us. Like I'm thinking about Mrs. Farmer. This is a woman who, is a, who kind of taught us worship a little bit in, in our Sunday school classes. She's a music teacher at the elementary school, and she had this little yellow tennis ball, and she would cut a little slit in it and paint it with, like, lipstick there. And it was really, really weird, and she would squeeze it to teach us how to open up our mouths and how to sing praises unto God. And it was so bizarre, and it was so weird. And, like, I, I remember that because she would use that little thing, and she would just say, we have been given a voice to praise God. Like second grade, like we've been given a voice. Like he gave you that tongue and he gave you that mouth so you could sing praises to God. I'm thinking about Roy Farmer, her husband, like this, this just, how do I honor, okay. It was crazy. Like the, the guy, had, he's probably, I don't know why he was in a Bible church. It was like a Southern Baptist kind of a thing. The guy was just like so full of joy. Like he's bouncing around on stage. Older, older man, just full of energy and excitement and stuff. And I remember watching him, I was like, what is he drinking? Like, I was like, what is he on? But just coming, like, week after week, it just surrendered to the Lord, just worshiping him, beholding his beauty, beholding who he is, and just pouring his life out. I'm thinking about, like, I'm thinking about the Hargroves, these Har- the, the, the young family that was investing in us as young kids and stuff. Like, they, they take these high schoolers, and they're, they're teaching us everything. And, like, they didn't, they, they didn't, there was nothing special about them. They were just available. And I'm thinking about all these different pieces, and these are men and women who are never going to have books written about their lives, but they gathered every single week, and they were genuine worshipers, and they saw what God was doing in this collective body of broken people that all believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they're willing to serve, and they're willing to build, and they're willing to contribute rather than just consume. Forever indebted to them. Some of us are praying hard. God, would you come, and would you make this gathering a place of grace where people of all walks of life can come and be able to receive the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to require a unified gathering of worshipers. They're willing to be built up and willing to go outside of these walls in unity in order to storm the gates of hell. Some of us are praying for that next generation. This is the thing that burdens my heart big time, big time, big time. That God would get a hold of our next generation. And that he would raise up Daniels and Deborahs and these men and women who are going to rise up and say, no more, I will not bow I don't care what's going on around me. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to bend. Like I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep praising the Lord Jesus Christ and living for him and for him alone. And it's going to require a community of believers, a community of worshipers. That God has taken root inside of your soul. And it's changed you from the inside. And you're beginning to see what he wants to do in this gathering of believers. And it's going to take men and women who are willing to be contributors to what he's building rather than just consumers. Everything that we're praying for here at the church and everything that we're praying for around the world is available. When we come together in unity and we're willing to go in the power of the Holy Spirit.